Welcome to Chapter 5, Real Estate Brokerage. Uh, in an earlier chapter, Chapter 1, we saw there are many specialties in the real estate business. The two largest specialties are the real estate brokerage and the property management specialty. Uh, about 70% of all licensees either work in brokerage or in property management and probably 50% work in the brokerage field. So brokerage is probably something most of you taking this course are going to be involved in, uh, if not that property management. And in property management, we'll cover that more in a later chapter. I believe it's chapter 19. Uh, so let's get into brokerage and what it what it is and what it means and how it's going to impact you in the real estate business and your practice. Uh, this is an uh, extra little screen I put up here. Uh, I, uh, we've got it tagged to uh, page 61, but basically this gives you an overview to a real estate brokerage uh, office. Uh, we have a, a broker license uh, which is held by a corporation or an LLC or a partnership. Uh, and then we have a managing broker license underneath that. Uh, that managing broker license is an individual. And then we have the, uh, the broker license, broker license, and perhaps even leasing agents uh, licenses. Um, at the very top, when we talk about the broker license, uh, that corporate license, uh, that broker license would also be the sponsoring broker as a corporation. They, the uh, corporation itself, as a sponsoring broker, would be holding all licenses, including that of the managing broker and including that of all the brokers and leasing agents that might be working uh, under that sponsoring broker corporate license. So, welcome also to known as Chapter 5 Real Estate Brokerage. brokerage. Uh, in an earlier chapter, Chapter 1, we saw there are many specialties in the real estate business. The two largest specialties are the real estate brokerage and the property management specialty. Uh, about 70% of all licensees either work in brokerage or in property management and probably 50% work in the brokerage field. So brokerage is probably something most of you taking this course are going to be involved in, uh, if not that property management. And in property management, we'll cover that more in a later chapter, I believe it's chapter 19. Uh, so let's get into brokerage and what it what it is and what it means and how it's going to impact you in the real estate business and your practice. Now, in uh, a smaller real estate office, we have a managing broker with a managing broker license who is self-sponsored. This is primarily in the sole proprietorship, if you will, mom and pop kind of organization where an individual holds their own uh, managing broker license and therefore they're also called the sponsoring broker. So the sponsoring broker can be corporate in nature, the sponsoring broker can be an individual nature if it's a sole person. And of course underneath that are our broker licenses, uh, leasing agent licenses, uh, licensed sales assistants, okay, all individuals are licensed under the sponsoring broker within which within a sole proprietorship is the same person as the managing broker sort of a doing a business as versus a corporate structure
it is important to maybe mention here that those individual broker salespeople, if you will, broker salespeople that are licensed to the sponsoring broker, in this case the managing broker individual, so proprietorship, uh, that they can actually form a corporation of which they are the sole stockholder. Uh, the purpose of that corporation uh, would be to receive compensation. Uh, it really has more to do with liability than it has to do with ta tax consequences. Uh, so as a practicing broker slash salesperson licensed to a managing broker, you can actually incorporate yourself as a uh, S-Corp uh, corporation, uh, the sole purpose of which is to uh, have your monies uh, deposited to, um, and it's, uh, it isn't a corporation that is a, quote, real estate corporation. It's just a corporation uh, developed, uh, um, owned, and operated by a sole broker salesperson in order to receive compensation from their managing broker. Remember, unlicensed salespeople must be employees and must never receive commissions. So licensed sales assistants can be independent contractors and licensed sales assistants can receive uh, commissions, if you will. Uh, those sales assistants uh, must, licensed sales assistants must only receive their compensation from a managing broker. An unlicensed sales assistant can actually be compensated by a quote broker salesperson, maybe somebody they're working in their team with. So unlicensed salespeople can receive compensation from a quote broker salesperson that they're the member of a team for, let's say, uh, but uh, they must be treated as an employee. The sponsoring broker and broker salesperson relationship. Uh, an extra slide I put up here. The broker can represent only one sponsoring broker at a time. So you as a licensee can only be working for one sponsoring broker at any given time. Uh, all compensation must flow from your sponsoring broker. The broker must have you, uh, you as a broker, licensed broker, must have a written agreement with your broker establishing your relationship with them. So if you will, you must have an employment contract and in that employment contract it must specifically state what kind of relationship you would have with them and by relationship in this case we mean either that of an employee or that of an independent contractor. Now, one of the most uh, important decisions you and your broker are going to have to make is what kind of employment status you're going to have as you work in their office. There's really uh, two choices. One is the independent contractor status and one is the employee status. Let's look at the tax impact to the employee status. Let's start with that. If you are an employee, then the broker must withhold from your earnings federal and state income taxes, so they got to account for that and withhold it. They also have to withhold Social Security taxes any, on any of the wages that you make, typically on a monthly basis they'll do this. The broker must also pay for unemployment taxes, federal unemployment taxes and or state unemployment taxes, so they actually have to pay money based on the amount of your uh, earnings each month. And the broker may pay additional fees for you as an employee, 
which would include company benefits, any insurance, profit sharing programs, and things like that. So the bottom line is that if you're classified as an employee, it's going to cost that broker uh, an additional amount of personnel expense, not only in dollars out of his pocket, but also in accounting services, secretarial services, and uh, and uh, you know the uh, the uh, administrative costs of of you are being a uh, employee versus an independent contractor. And if you think about most real estate offices, your monies, your commissions are intermittent and uh, they may be uh, a lot or maybe not be a lot when you're first in the real estate business. So brokers aren't anxious to take on this additional expense of having you as a employee versus an independent contractor. So we're going to see in a second we're going to talk about independent contractor status in a second. We're going to see that most real estate salespeople are classified as independent contractors. But when you go to work for your real estate firm, this is one of the important decisions you and your broker will have to make uh, between you, whether in his office he has employees or whether he has independent contractors and how that's going to impact you not only from a tax standpoint, but also impact you from a control standpoint, how much he can control you. Independent contractors aren't as controllable uh, by the employer as employees are. Uh, so this will be an important uh, decision uh, to make what your uh, employee status is. And just on one last thing before we move on, uh, as an employee then, the broker must withhold and the broker must pay these, uh, these uh, taxes and our uh, federal, federal and state income taxes, as well as Social Security taxes and unemployment taxes, as an independent contractor, you'll make these quarterly payments yourself. This will not be an expense that the broker will have to share. And as an independent contractor, you're not going to be able to get company benefits like insurance and profit sharing. Now, since most of you are going to be independent contractors, if you will, 1099 employees, uh, you've got to qualify to be an independent contractor. You just can't, uh, anybody just can't uh, make that declaration they're going to be an independent contractor. So the IRS has uh, some rules, if you will, uh, and if you uh, fall within these tests, the with within these guidelines, then you become employed. Uh, they have some rules for independent contractors. So if you can qualify as an independent contractor, in our case, have a current real estate license, uh, have a written employment contract with whoever you're working with, in this case a sponsoring broker, uh, saying that you're a independent contractor, and if 90% of your individual, uh, your the individual's income as the licensee itself is based on sales production and not a number of hours, then you're well on your way to be able to claim yourself as an independent contractor, as a broker claim you as an independent contractor. Uh, we're going to see in the next slide there are a few more uh, requirements in order to perfect your ability to be an independent contractor. Continue with the independent contractor, page 62. Uh, you, you do not work uh, and at determined hours. You kind of pick your own hours as an independent contractor. The broker cannot, cannot assign hours to you as an independent contractor. You don't receive uh, any salaries you must be, of course, self-motivated. You must have total control over how and when you do your work. So 
So that means that the when you become an independent contractor, technically your employer, the sponsoring broker, to the independent contractor, uh, you must have total control of when you work, how you work, how you do your work. And uh, there are some, uh, a little, we're going to kind of put a little finer point on this in a little bit, but it's important to know as an independent contractor that the uh, sponsoring broker loses a lot of control over you uh, as an independent contractor. Paid irregularly. You can't be required to attend office meetings. Uh, this is actually kind of being uh, viewed at again a little bit differently. You can be required to attend uh, training sessions, however, in order to further your skills. Uh, other than that, uh, the uh, employer, your sponsoring broker, technically can't assign you hours to work, can't tell you when to take floor time, can't tell you what part of town you're supposed to work on, tell you what kind of deals you, should, you, you, you must work on. Um, I can't make you attend regular office meetings if you have them. As an independent contractor, you, he has less control over you in these kinds of regards. So the sponsoring, managing broker, whether it's corporate in nature or whether it's an individual in nature, running their own company, uh, is responsible for all brokerage activities, responsible for the actions of their sales associates, uh, they're a party to the listing agreements and buyer brokerage agreements. All compensation that individuals that are sponsored by them, all compensation comes from their sp uh, sponsoring uh, broker slash managing broker. Uh, and the sponsoring or managing broker holds all licensees in their name. So on page 70, we're talking about uh, managing brokers' responsibilities, maintenance of licenses. <coughs> Sponsoring broker is needs to notify the Illinois Department of Professional Regulation, our licensing agency here in Illinois, of all of the managing brokers' names and the branch office or main office locations. <coughs> so that's one of the duties of the sponsoring broker uh, to notify the department so they know who the managing brokers are. Uh, sponsoring brokers remember, might be corporate in nature, so it's the managing broker, it's the person that we want to know who is who is responsible for, for all these activities that we're going to be talking about. And also, of course, where these activities are taking place, the branch offices and the main offices. Uh, managing brokers, of course, must hold the Illinois Managing Broker Real Estate License. Managing res broker's responsibilities, death or incapacity of a self-sponsored broker. So if we have a, a self-sponsored broker, uh, you got your little brokerage company, uh, and uh, something happens to that individual, the managing broker, either a death or they become incapacitated, uh, then a couple things can happen. Uh, one, if there is a court-appointed administrator, they may in fact manage the office without a license uh, as long as the sole intent is to eventually close it. So the department will allow, if you will, a non-licensed managing broker appointed by, an, uh, by a court uh, for to dispose of uh, the assets of the individual that died or that became incapacitated as a court-appointed administrator. Now, in the previous slide, we talked about the death or incapacity of a self-sponsored or managing broker, if you will. 
in the event that the office is not going to go on, uh, that the office is going to get closed. Suppose you had the death or your uh, managing broker was incapacitated, but the office wanted to continue on. In that case, uh, the office itself, someone within the office, has to requ request within 15 days uh, of the loss of the managing broker to the department and ask them for a 60-day extension to find another managing broker. If that's granted, then you've got 60 days to continue with your office until you identify a new managing broker or maybe somebody in your office runs out and gets their managing broker's license and, and then the office continues. Uh, in the event that you don't request this within 15 days or you are not able to uh, identify a, uh, another managing broker for that office within that 60-day period of time, then all uh, real estate activities within the office has to cease and all of the uh, brokers there, all of the salespeople, brokers, uh, and staff uh, must leave and find another sponsoring broker. As far as renewals, uh, the managing broker is responsible for the license renewals of all of his licenses. So when the sponsoring broker receives the renewal application form from the IDFPR for each of his uh, brokers that uh, he's sponsoring, uh, when he receives those, uh, he needs to uh, notify them in person within seven days uh, that, we, uh, that he's received these renewal applications. Uh, or uh, within uh, 10 days uh, by certified mail. Uh, if uh, forms are undeliverable uh, for the licensees, uh, those would be the licensees that are no longer with the broker. He should take those forms, forms <coughs> and then return them to the department. So Mr. Managing Broker, when you receive the renewal forms to renew their licenses, remember this is done every two years, Every, maybe you don't know, every two years, brokers in Illinois, uh, in even number of years, by April 30th, must renew their broker's licenses with the IDFPR. So when those licenses uh, renewal forms are sent to the managing broker, uh, he has to uh, uh, take that seriously and make sure that the people that he is sponsoring receive their renewal forms, either in, purpose, uh, in person within seven days after he gets it, or by certified mail within uh, uh, 10 days after receiving the renewal applications. So real important, can't just uh, disregard it and say, hey brokers that work for me, it's your responsibility to renew, not mine. Uh, Mr. Sponsoring Broker, uh, part of your duty is to make sure that all those people are renewed, and if people are no longer with you, take their renewal licenses, I should, I'm sorry, their renewal forms uh, for their uh, broker's license, a renewal of their broker's license, and send it back to the Department of Professional Regulation. Another broker manager responsibility is the change of office or branch address. Very important. Uh, if you change your main office or any branch office, you have to notify the Illinois Department within 24 hours of that change of address. As far as advertising, Mr. Managing Broker, you're responsible for all of the advertising in your office and uh, the, the ad, if there are any ads that are placed and your name, Mr. Managing Broker, your name appears somewhere in that ad or on the website uh, or on an email, if your name appears there, then next to your name we must have the also the managing 
broker we have to identify you as the managing broker advertising incidentally covers a wide variety of media <coughs> billboards newspaper ads yellow pages websites social media etc managing brokers are also responsible for training all their licensed and unlicensed people they must assist their, their uh, licensees with their real estate transactions. They are the uh, primary supervisor and are responsible for any escrow accounts that their office may hold. Of course, we said all advertising. Uh, managing brokers need to familiarize themselves with local, state, and federal laws that relate to the practice of real estate because uh, their licensees are going to be uh, measured against those laws and therefore so will the managing broker. So managing brokers stay abreast of federal, state, and local laws affecting real estate transactions uh, because they're going to affect your real estate transactions and therefore they're going to affect your real estate uh, brokers and licensees that are in your office. Uh, the managing brokers are responsible for their offices to, uh, to and, their, and their brokers in their offices to comply with all the Illinois Department of uh, Real Estate Illinois Department of Financial and Professional Regulation, uh, the rules and regulations of the real estate division. Good idea to have a policy and procedure manual in place because it will identify all of these different items we're talking about here. So make sure as a managing broker and make sure as you as a broker working for a real estate office, a managing broker, sponsoring broker, uh, that they have a written policy and procedure manual. It is required by law. Termination of licensees. If someone leaves you voluntarily or involuntarily, what do you do? How do you handle that, Mr. Broker? Well, what you do is you take their license off your wall and sign the termination date on their original license and make a copy of it. You send the copy back to the IDFBR. <coughs> you give the original back to the licensee. The licensee then uh, goes to the new broker. You will have 24 hours, to, uh, the new broker then will have 24 hours to complete a 45-day permit and, hand the, and they can hang the old license up until the new one, one is issued. So the two things are old broker, make a copy, send the copy back of the license to the department, let them know you, that licensee is no longer sponsored by you. New broker, you've got 24 hours to fill a 45-day permit out and let the IDFPR know that you have a new licensee uh, working for you. Uh, meanwhile, you can start to practice immediately before you get your new license, which should come in 45 days. On page 71, we talk about planning. Um, I don't know that this is a very testable area, but you know, the managing broker is responsible for the business planning uh, of his office or her office um, and follows good planning procedures uh, uh, as far as um, you know, developing business plans. And uh, they sh you know, any good business person should have a written business plan stating your objectives and your marketing plan within those objectives and your philosophy as a as a company and a mission statement those kinds of things so those are uh, the appropriate duties for <coughs> a managing broker uh, to be able to do strategic 
and business planning. Uh, each office in Illinois must have a policy and procedure manual and in that policy and procedure manual um, as uh, we'll see in a little bit there are certain things that must be in those policies and procedures manual and this is a state law by the way that uh, if you are sponsoring slash managing other people uh, you need to have a written policy procedure manual and they need to be given a copy of it and that policy procedure manual does need to cover certain uh, identifiable topics responsible for the safety of your licensees in, in your office uh, errors and omissions insurance very important to have your book goes very extensively on errors and omissions insurance I think if you read that through one time I, I don't think there's a, a lot of a lot of detail in errors and omissions uh, just to know that uh, it's good for offices to have them there it, it is not a mandated state law that real estate offices have to have errors and omissions insurance uh, but I certainly think if you're working for a real estate firm uh, it's good that uh, your office has it and it's good that you're covered by it as well um, because it covers for those things errors and omissions sometimes honest mistakes can injure people and a uh, honest omission might uh, injure someone and they may have a remedy against you and or your office and errors and omissions insurance is there to protect you make sure you read uh, on uh, the uh, pages on page 75 the excluded coverages those things that are not covered or pr uh, protected under errors and omissions insurance uh, personal assistance we're going to talk about in a second a managing brokers responsible for any personal assistance licensed or unlicensed assistance in the office and the managing broker is also responsible for setting up the compensation programs that uh, they, they pay uh, their uh, brokers in their office and or their staff in their office uh, this would be the strictly the purview of the managing broker to establish this remember that uh, in the real estate transaction you've earned that commission you've earned that compensation when you've become the procuring cause of the sale we'll talk about that more in detail in a little bit unlicensed personal assistants uh, they can't have what we would call direct contact with the consumer if they have contact with the consumer it's basically giving the consumer factual information if you will anything that's uh, publicized they could pass on to the consumer so if a, con if a consumer called and asked about a price of a property the unlicensed personal assistant handling that phone call could give them the price of the property but they couldn't <coughs> be involved in giving them any more of the terms or conditions uh, maybe even availability of the property so unlicensed personal assistants think in terms of those as doing mostly secretarial kind of work for the broker sales people that they are working for they can take messages they can handle non-consumer related administrative tasks uh, they can be paid directly by the broker salesperson that they're supporting not by the sponsoring broker because they're not actually being sponsored must be treated as an employee licensed personal assistants on page 67 we talk about personal assistants and basically you have two kinds of personal assistants we have licensed personal assistants and we have unlicensed personal assistants the one good thing about licensed personal assistants is uh, besides uh, having a real estate license then they have the right to contact uh, have direct contact with uh, consumers or clients or customers
but to do that they must be licensed and that may be of a benefit to you if you as an individual broker salesperson have a team of people and you've got some assistance on your team you might find it desirable to have them licensed doing exactly what you're doing taking the broker's exam and taking the state exam they must be licensed to the same broker as the sale broker salesperson they are working for so they're still going to be sponsored by your sponsoring broker just as you are they must have a written contract with the sponsoring broker just as you do and they can only be compensated by the sponsoring broker so uh, in a team situation if your licensed personal assistant was to get paid then you have to actually sort of run that compensation just as it comes through to you from your sponsoring broker the licensed personal assistant would also get paid so that would be something you'd work out with your sponsoring broker on how your licensed personal assistants even though they're licensed to the sponsoring broker would be compensated to collect a commission uh, in Illinois and most other states the first thing you must have is a real estate license you must show evidence of being hired so we have to be licensed we have to have an employment contract by the party say the seller in this case a listing agreement uh, that uh, a contract must show the amount of commission the time it's to be paid and we must be the procuring cause of the sale as we talked about earlier finding a buyer ready willing and able and we're due our commission it's earned when we found it it's usually payable at closing so there's a difference between when you've earned your commission and when it's payable procuring cause is important because procuring cause will determine then when in fact you're actually paid as an independent contractor and procuring cause means that you as a broker salesperson started an in, in, in uninterrupted chain of events uh, without abandoning the deal or the parties to it uh, which ultimately led to the sale of property if you in fact uh, did that and you found a buyer that was ready willing and able uh, you would be the procuring cause of the sale in which case you would be entitled to a commission so procuring cause is a, a little bit of a gray area because we get into what is an un, uh, what is uninterrupted chain of events uh, what is abandonment uh, and did it lead to a sales contract where we had a ready willing and able buyer and of the ready willing and able probably the the most important term there would be um, uh, able uh, ready willing and able able which is financially able uh, that would be the kind of buyer then that would uh, qualify then qualify you for procuring cause if these other two conditions were also met brokers compensation broker is comp commission then is considered earned when they became the procuring cause of the sale so when the broker produced a buyer who was ready willing and able uh, they would be uh, the procuring cause of the sale assuming all the other conditions are met and they've earned their commission and of course they uh, when we say broker here this commission is going to go to your sponsoring broker and then the sponsoring broker then will pay you as the agent in, in the deal so a broker therefore could earn a commission by meeting all those requirements we just talked about and still earn a commission if the property hasn't sold 
Notice we didn't say anything about the property actually closing. We've said you've earned your commission when you were the procuring cause of the sale. So if a seller at closing, let's say, had a change of heart, refused to sell, or perhaps a spouse refused to sign the deed, buyer wouldn't accept the deed without seller's spouse signing. Uh, maybe there's an, uh, defects in the title uh, that seller refuses to correct. Uh, in that case, a broker has still earned their commission and would then either have to sue for the commission if the seller refused to sell, uh, or in some cases, in most cases, well, a lot of cases with residential property, uh, the broker will just say, oh, never mind, let's put it back on the market and you know, go back and find you another buyer, Mr. Seller. But in fact, the broker may have the opportunity and has the right to sue for a commission on uh, commissions that he was appearing cause on that did not close, not because of any reason of the broker, but because of a reason of the seller or buyer. Don't forget that would be a breach by the seller or the buyer, and that's where they would have to have their remedy, not by you know uh, not paying the broker the commission that he's entitled to. So broker earns a commission. Um, if uh, there was fraud in, in the transaction, not perpetrated by the broker, but by one of the other parties. Um, if the uh, uh, seller is unable to deliver possession as promised. If the sale is canceled by mutual agreement with the buyer, the broker has still earned his commission if he were the procuring cause of the sale. And in fact, the seller would you know, have to pay that commission. And if they didn't, the broker would be in his rights to sue for commission if he wants to. In Illinois, a sponsoring broker may pay a commission to um, a leasing uh, agent, uh, a broker salesperson that is sponsored to the broker. So you, when I say broker salesperson, that would be you. I say broker salesperson so we can distinguish that between uh, uh, you know, the uh, regular sponsoring broker or managing broker. So the sponsoring broker can pay a commission to you. They can pay a commission to a leasing agent, if in fact they hire leasing agents that are sponsored to the broker, or they can pay another co-op broker that was involved in the deal. Those are the only individuals that can be paid commissions by the sponsoring broker. Further with broker's compensation, the broker's compensation is specified in the contract with the principal. So uh, when a broker signs a listing agreement, or if the broker were to sign a buyer brokerage agreement, in those two agreements between the sponsoring broker and the seller, or the sponsoring broker and the uh, buyer, uh, we would spell out exactly how that seller or how that buyer would be paying a compensation to uh, the sponsoring broker. How much it is, when it's to be paid, and we would probably even go into uh, that the uh, commission might even be split if cooperating brokers were involved in finding the buyer or in the buyer's case in finding a seller that was ready, willing, and able. So we'll have the amount of the broker's commission. It's negotiable in every case. Remember that as far as commissions, uh, it's an antitrust violation to set say that commissions are set. 
commissions are negotiable in every case between the parties. Uh, typically we're talking about the seller and the broker, but occasionally you might be uh, paid a commission by a buyer to find a buyer a certain kind of property. Typically uh, uh, commercial deals, you'll find more buyers paying uh, uh, hiring brokers to find certain kinds of properties on commercial transactions versus residential. A broker can set minimum rates for his brokerage firm so before you comment on the commission that's going to be charged to the seller when you're doing your listing presentation make sure that your broker and you are on the same page as far as agreeing to whatever uh, com you know commissions uh, he will or won't charge uh, your uh, seller that you're you know signing up for him if you will uh, in that particular deal so always check with your broker before you quote commission rates Broker compensation math, um, end of each chapter, uh, there are some uh, math problems on page 592. Uh, there is uh, also some uh, math problems on page 499, which is a separate math test. Uh, and then, of course, our REEC student support site, we have a whole uh, math review there that includes uh, broker commission math as well as other math that you might want to be familiar with. So uh, all those are good areas to go to and do some of your broker commission math because there will be some of that on the state exam and some of that on the final too. So do brush up on your commission math. Antitrust laws. We want to know, of course, that the Sherman Antitrust Act is basically the primary uh, antitrust act that affects people in the real estate business. Um, and uh, the Anti-Sherman Antitrust Act uh, applies to real estate, the real estate industry in a couple of areas. One is price fixing, one is group boycotting, one is allocation of customers or markets, and the other is tie-in agreements. Primarily price fixing is the Sherman Antitrust Act says as a real estate broker, sponsoring broker, running an office, uh, don't meet with your competitors and share what, you're, what you are charge, uh, charging for commissions. And this is uh, also going to apply to you as a broker salesperson as you're working for your sponsoring broker. You as licensed brokers now, sometimes I call you broker salespeople just so we know we're talking about you and not the sponsoring broker, but you as broker salesperson working for your broker, uh, be careful what you talk to uh, competitors about. Uh, even if you're being interviewed by a competitor to go work for them, be careful of sharing what your broker charges uh, as far as commissions uh, because that technically is uh, butting up to uh, Sherman Antitrust activities. So price fixing uh, ha means that you as a broker working for your sponsoring broker, broker salesperson working for your sponsoring broker, uh, anything to do with commissions is strictly between you and your sponsoring broker and no one else, not even other people in your office frankly. Group boycotting uh, group boycott boycotting is that uh, we as a group of uh, real estate brokers might get together and say we don't like that other broker in that other office. Uh, he's not charging enough commission perhaps or he's a flat fee broker and he's, uh, he's, not, uh, he's not, not competitive with what we're charging as commissions. <clears throat> so what we'll do to boycott him is we won't show his listings. Allocation of customers or markets, that would be where I as a sponsoring broker would take you and my other brokers that are licensed to me and I would put one on the north side, one on the east side, one on the south side of town and just have you exclusively work those markets or perhaps what I, as an independent contractor I couldn't do that. 
or perhaps what I would do is meet with other brokers and we as brokerage firms would split up the market and allocate the market that each of us would work. Tie-in agreements, we don't see this too much in the real estate business. Uh, that would be where, let's say, I as a, uh, a licensee developer, I develop some properties, and as a licensee, part of the agreement I make with you is if you buy one of my track homes, uh, you would agree then that whenever you go to sell that home, you would list it through my brokerage agreement, so um, my, my brokerage company. So one contract, the contract to purchase one of my track homes would have an, a tie-in with another contract, which when, when you sold that home, you would also sell it through my brokerage uh, arm, my brokerage wing or company. So tie-in agreements we don't see too much in the brokerage field. Price fixing is, is the big one to be careful of. And it's the Sherman Antitrust. Be aware of the do not call uh, law here in the uh, real estate business, the uh, national do not call registry, because it's going to affect you. So before you start to make any cold calls into your market area, a good idea would be to talk to your manager first because uh, you are going to have some national do not call registry impact to that and he can direct you on to who you can and who you cannot call. Uh, technically, if you have a business relationship with a consumer, then the do not call prohibition would not affect that particular individual. But here again, as I said, uh, um, the um, uh, you know you can call a consumer uh, even if they're on the registry. If uh, you know you've had an 18-month uh, contact, a business contact with that uh, particular consumer. Uh, but I, as I say, I would always contact my managing broker, sponsoring broker, uh, before you started making cold calls. Can spam, I don't think we see as much of this as we did, you know, 10 years ago when people used, um, uh, I'm sorry, this is the uh, can't, uh, uh, can spam, this is, we do see this today, this is the email, I was thinking the can, the fax uh, act, but the can spam act, uh, is something that if you're going to do mass emails, uh, be very careful of who you're sending them to and if they meet some minimum requirements. Uh, the Can Spam Act is specifically uh, designed to uh, have consumers around the country not be barraged with spam that they really didn't want. Uh, so if you're going to do mass e-flyers, again, talk to my broker, show him what you're going to do, make sure it meets the minimum requirements of his office, the minimum requirements of the Can Spam Act, um, and the, the the big thing with the cam spam is that you can't have false or misleading headers uh, when you send the spam out, when you spend the send the email out. Uh, you can't have deceptive subject lines, and the uh, recipients must have the opt-out provision. So if they get one, they can opt out, which means you can't ever contact them again if they do that. And that if it's a commercial email, it must be at be uh, identified that it is an advertisement, and include your physical address, so that if someone wants to, they can physically get to you and opt out, even if you do have an opt out provision. So meet the minimum requirements, if you will, of the Can Spam Act. And as I said, probably a good idea talk to your managing broker before you do anything uh, that has to do with uh, mass emails. Junk Fax Act, the Junk Fax Act, very similar to the Can Spam Act. 
I don't think we see as much of this as we did before, but be aware that if you're going to do any mass faxing, that you need to also meet the minimum requirements of the Junk Fax Act. And, uh, uh, you know, here uh, you need to have the prior written consent of the recipient to do that. So here we get back in that established business relationship again. We have to have an opt-out provision and the fax numbers must be acquired either by written or oral consent from the intended re recipient. So you can't buy uh, fax numbers at some uh, you know, fax number uh, e-service that you might buy. And now please turn to the Chapter 5 quiz questions.